I had a inner dilemma. On one hand, I couldn't fully present myself as a Muslim. That verbal abuse deteriorates to physical abuse. I have openly spoken about this as well. If they had opportunity to kill me, they would have done it. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Side by Side. And I'm your host, Kazi Shafiqur Rahman. Now, today's conversation that we're going to have is with someone very special, Brother Abdul Malik Taylor. One question I do get asked Did at any time think about leaving Islam? My honest answer is, and Allah is my witness, the answer, the answer is. is Brother Abdul Malik, Assalamu Alaikum. Wa Alaikum Assalam wa Rahmatullahi wa Thank you for joining us on Side by Side podcast. Now, thank you for having me. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. I always kind of look forward to talking to you because you have a very interesting job, and I'm sure we will kind of unpack um, some of your activities on this podcast. Now, starting with your name, like Taylor. It's a mystery, isn't it? Yeah. I got an English surname and an Islamic first name. Yes. Well, just to inform everybody, I wasn't a born Muslim. I converted to Islam. I no used to be way. a practicing Hindu. Yeah. Serious? Yeah. A lot of people um, think I'm Pakistani. I'm not Pakistani. And then when I tell them I'm actually a convert, revert to Islam, they think automatically I, I, I used to be a Sikh. Just purely with my stature, my build. I say no, it was actually in terms of an origin. I'm like Gujarati Indian and they tend to be a bit more thinner, you could say. And what it, the surname goes back to the days of um, when my ancestors left Gujarat in India uh, during the days of the British Raj. Some went to East Africa and some went to Fiji. And what they decided to do is translate the original surname, which was Durji, the one who sews. The, the cast they kind of like used to belong to, yeah. to the English equivalent for immigrate to make it easier for immigration purposes. Ah, so you do have like heritage or, or history in what um, tailoring? Is, is that my, is that what it my is? My father was a tailor. My mum was a machinist at home, and I did enjoy doing textiles at secondary school. Amazing. Now. Honestly, wallah, I did not know <laughs> that you were you you are a revert, and that, that's really fascinating. Tell us a little bit more about your journey. How did it come about? I used to be a practicing Hindu. I was the most practicing Hindu in my immediate family, and wow. out of my cousins as well. So people kind of looked up to me, and I did do pilgrimage to India to see a man god called Satya Sai Baba. It's about hundred miles away from Bangalore. And whilst we were over there, we had four interviews. And just to get one interview, it'd be considered to be special. Two, extremely special. Three, unheard of. Four, you're on a different planet, as they say, to just get an interview with this man, God. And when I came back to UK, I was on the circuit speaking about my experiences to do with such a side barber. And what... I remember some um, Muslim connections whilst I was there. I used to hear the Adhan. So whilst I would be doing my darshan, I would hear the Adhan, uh, whatever the prayers were. And I used to think to myself, why is this Muslim pray praying to um, Allah 
when you've got Bhagwan over here, Bhagwan, the Gujarati word for God, over here. And as I say, later in life, you'll find out why. I had no idea what the words were. All I remember was Allahu Akbar, and that meant God is the greatest. And the rest of it, to me, as far as I was concerned, was just gibberish. And one thing I do also remember at that time, when I did the Hindu pilgrimage, I remember that I was being told that the Muslims will be the last people to turn to such a sign, Baba. And I did kind of wonder, well, why, why is that then? But I didn't look too much in depth into that to seek an answer. But what happens is, when I came back, we, um, as I said, I was um, uh, attending all the different Sai Baba um, events, and I, I was a speaker there. Sometimes I would lead the what's known as the bhajans, like the hymns, and people would follow. And I also, I, I was in between a vegetarian and vegan as well at that time. And my family members really weren't. And what happens though, a, I was going to college from uh, Walthamstow, so not too far away from the studios, to Barnet College. So it's on the opposite side of London and I had to catch the bus number 34. And I used to wake up early. We used to have a, a family pet dog and I used to take the dog for morning walkies. And what happened was, on the parallel road to the family house, there's a masjid, Masjid Umar, or Queen's Road Mosque. And I used to see the elders, you know, the big bushy beards, the long skirts, going to the mosque. So whilst the dogs are doing his business, I'd be watching these Muslims, and I'd be under my breath, I'd be taking the mickey out of them. Thinking, what is these guys? I mean, can't they, like, shape up here? <laughs> like, <laughs> in the face and on the clothing here. And what happened was, though, this is sorry, for Salat al-Fajr prayers. So whilst I'm walking my dog at five or six o'clock in the morning, these Muslim elders are going to the mosque to do their prayers. And I'm just thinking, this doesn't make sense here. What are these guys doing? But what happened was I kept on seeing it day in, day out. And then that creates a bit of curiosity. Why are these guys doing this for at this time of day? I'm, but then it hit me. These guys are praying at a time they've been told to pray as opposed to myself praying at a time I wanted to pray. So I could do my prana, my Hindu prayers, etc. At a time, for example, if I slept um, to a time in, into the afternoon, I could do my prayers then. So it was my choice when I wanted to pray. But then it did hit me, the Muslims are praying at a time they've been told to pray. So what happened, that curiosity then developed into me fasting. Because the group I used to belong to was like a multi-faith group. So we celebrated Christian festivals, Hindu festivals, Jewish festivals, Buddhist festivals, Sikh festivals. But then I realized there's no Islam here. And I thought Ramadan's coming up. So I managed to get a prayer timetable from one of my Pakistani friends. And I started to do my fasting. I used to fast from um, the morning until the evening, um, Zuhur to Maghrib time, Iftar time. And that year I was washing my dishes as well after um, Suhul Seri. And so my family members didn't really, you know, work out that I was fasting. And what happens then, um, I remembered that I, when I was going on that bus 34, I got into a conversation with some friends and some of my relatives sometimes joined me on the, on, on the, on the bus because I was going to the same college. And they were quite surprised and shocked that I was fasting as well. But I did say to them, 
Sai Baba talks about multifaithism and how all the religions are the same in terms of their goal. It's like um, the example they would use, the metaphor of like, um, would be like if you go to the top of a mountain, there's different paths that goes to the top of the mountains, but the ultimate is the goal at the top. And I thought, okay. But then my relatives started asking me, you're fasting? I go, yeah, and this is quite a big thing to do from morning to evening. And no water? I go, no water. That's what I've been told. I can't even have water. But remember, I'm not even, I'm not Muslim though. <laughs> uh, so yeah, at this time, I'm not Muslim. I'm a Hindu who's deciding to observe the month of Ramadan. As the whole month? The whole month. Wow. Uh, that was my intention. However, I did the Monday to Fridays. Saturdays, I was at my mate's kebab store in the market. So I, I broke a couple. <laughs> Sunday, I didn't do because that was the family um, Sunday lunch day, all around the table, etc. And I didn't do the Sundays. I was saying the du'as in transliteration, but I wasn't doing the salah. At that time, from what my friends were saying, you, you, yeah, salah is good for you. They didn't say it was obligation. And remember, I wasn't even a Muslim though at this time. So that's what I did. And it was, the transition for me was about one year to Islam. And I was looking at different parts of Islam. As myself, I questioned my whole foundation as a practicing religious person. I looked again at the concept of God. Hinduism, we had multiple gods. And reincarnations to one god to another god. I believed in Jesus. But I saw him as a reincarnation of God. Not as a um, prophet of God. And Muslims were saying that this, uh, the, the very few pieces of literature I had, he was seen as a prophet of God. And why did they see him as a prophet of God? There was a part that made mention about the Council of Nicaea, which is modern day Isma in Turkey. In the year 325 AD, they, um, this is where the Trinity was formed. Now, just to give you a bit of wider exposure to myself, I grew up in a semi-Jewish neighborhood in Hackney. I went to a Church of England school. Therefore, I had to go to church as well. And I was the person putting up the hymn numbers in school as well. So I had a position. And I had that good exposure to different faiths, you could say, but not the Islamic part. And what happens in this case, though, I started to look at that. The Trinity in Christianity, again, as I say, the Trimurti in Hinduism, multiple gods of Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva in this case, and Islam. Islam was telling me there's only one God. And I also remembered at that time we had a multi-faith calendar of such a Sai Baba. And it had like um, facial representations of um, Jesus, Isabi Mariam, um, Guru Nanak, Buddha. And when it came to the Islam part, it was just the Kaaba. So I started looking at this, I'm thinking, that's a bit odd. Why is there no facial representation here? And then I was told that you can't have a facial representation of Allah because the creator cannot be like the created. And I was like, okay, makes sense, I guess. But what happens then, I, so that was the 325 AD, the Trinity, that time. 
I then thought, okay, the oneness of Allah, the monotheism, or we just say Tawheed, makes sense. And I also looked at who had the original language that was, as I say, still being used, played around, you could say. And again, I looked at Hinduism, my own faith, or mostly my own faith, Sanskrit. Did I know anyone who knew the Vedics? No. Did I know um, anyone who knew Sanskrit as a language, everyday language? I didn't know anyone who knew Sanskrit as an everyday language. Even when we were singing our bhajans, we had it in transliteration. And there wasn't even anyone that I knew who was trying to learn Sanskrit. So to me, it was like Latin. It's effectively a dead language. It's not one that um, you uh, one would use as an everyday language. But you do get students and some scholars who do master it, that I admit. But it's not an everyday language. Christianity again. Most people I engage with when I speak about Christianity and my journey to Islam, ah, Latin. I go, no, Latin's a European language. It's not a Middle Eastern language, you know. And it was definitely wasn't the language that Isambi Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic. And when I say that, Aramaic, they think I'm saying Arabic. I say, no, Aramaic. And even in my conversations today, if I come across a Christian missionary or just a Christian wants to give me their dawah, if you like, I say to them, look, get me the Aramaic Bible. And they keep thinking I'm saying Arabic. I say, no, Aramaic Bible. The Aramaic is the language that Jesus spoke. Wow. To this day, I give them my business card. Over 20 years have gone by, nobody has got back to me with the Aramaic Bible. And when I looked at Islam now, what do I see? Something completely different. Islam, the Quran, is in its original language. It's preserved, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, it will be preserved. It's a living day language. So you could find even, another part I looked at, who knew the whole uh, religious book themselves. Christianity, I know the vicar from the church, he only knew some. He didn't know the whole Bible. Then you have also in Hinduism, even to this day, I've not came across anyone who knows the whole Vedics off by heart or from, from memory. And Islam, you could perhaps find an 80-year-old in America to an 18-year-old in Indonesia who know the whole Quran from memory. So that in itself went to Islam's favor. This is perhaps my early days when I started doing my research, you could say. But what happens as well, I, and what year are we talking in, in terms of 19 I, I was uh, between 18 and 19 at this time. 18 and 19. And what happens, um, so this was in the 90s. 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 And what happens is I still haven't got managed to get hold of the Quran. So I went to my Pakistani friend's house once, twice, thrice <laughs> to ask for the Quran. Second occasion, he says, I have to have a bath. And I'm like thinking... Well, just to read a book. Because <laughs> it's a holy book and, you know, you need to be, like, clean or whatever. And I thought to myself, okay. I was a bit puzzled with that and I left. I went back after a few weeks and I said, okay, I ha I'm happy to have a bath. Can I read your Quran? And that's when he goes, well, you know the Quran? It's wrapped up because it's a holy book. It's wrapped up, kept on the top shelf. Um, so it stays clean. And I'll have to ask my mother because she's the most religious practicing person in the family, if you can borrow it. I said, yeah, auntie's just next door. You know, why don't you go and ask her? 
And he goes, oh, no, no, I can't do that. She's got guests and it'd be seen as disrespectful. And I was just thinking, I was just purple. Why are you making it so long for? (laughs) It's like one challenge after another. You know, and I thought to myself, you know what? Kalas, I'm out now. (laughs) So I didn't get my first Quran from him, from a Muslim. I got my first Quran from a Mauritian Hindu friend. I had done pilgrimage to see such a Sai Baba. So imagine that. And I said to him, I wanted to look at Islam. Just then, he starts this whole religious debate. I've never seen him like this before in my life. And, you know, you get that first uh, rebuttal and debate and this, that. And I'm thinking, wow, I've never seen you like this before. You're so vocal. <laughs> and um, he goes, I know you. I know you. If you're going to read it, you're going to become one of them. And then he starts, I go, what makes you say that? I'm just going to read it. Because I had a relative. He actually read the Quran and then he became Muslim as well. And knowing how you are, you'll do the same as well. <laughs> and I said, no, I just want to read it with an open mind and you know, see what it says. And I just, you know, don't, I don't have the intention to convert or whatever, but, you know, let's see what it says. But he goes like, you know, when he uses the examples of like a, a, a dog don't go into a barn and comes out as a horse or a horse going into a barn comes out as a dog. I go, thanks very much. I don't actually see myself as an animal here. <laughs> and, um, but what oh happens... My God. <laughs> Is that he then walks outside, walk out of, walks out of his bedroom, comes back in, and then he throws me a uh, dower bag from Seven Sisters uh, Masjid, and out slides the Holy Quran, the Abdul Yusuf Ali Holy Quran, and I was like, the, the, I remember that thought I had at that. Well, that's not a way one should treat a holy book, but I was like, I was actually happy that at least I've got my first Quran now. So I started to read the Abdul Yusuf Ali Quran, and this is like Shakespeare style, thy, thee, though, and I'm thinking when I was reading it, well, boy, you know, let's go back to Shakespeare here. But, you know, there were certain verses, for example, like in Surah Gashia, that really settled in my heart about what the believers would be given in paradise. Then I thought to myself, what have I been told in Hinduism? It's kind of a bit different, it is. I've been told, you know, whatever you abstain from, you'll be rewarded for it and you could potentially get it in the life you're afterwards. But there was a lot of superstition that was mixed up into it. And, you know, for example, keeping two broomsticks together, which was one was the mop, one was the broom, that was seen as bringing bad luck. You spilled the milk, that was seen as like um, bringing bad luck. It was a you know, Pakistan guna, basically, it was seen mm. as. Um, we had the, the horseshoe on the front door as well, on top of the front door. That was seen to bring good luck and worn away from bad luck, etc. There was, in fact, I remember, there was even a Tawiz um, just on the inside of the basement door. I remember that as well. I'll come back to that afterwards as well. So, um, and I remember as we were growing up, we did visit some peers as well. Stock and Trent, I think uh, Coventry, and... We had little um, some burning session in front of us, and jasmine oil was thrown into it. And um, my mother and my sisters sat on the outside, um, like behind the bodhar, as they say. And me and my father were there, so we did also have that experience as well. Um, but what happens now? So it's been a transition of about a year. I've um, decided to go to join the police as well. And what happens is that. There was a Turkish Muslim in there, and I said to them, 
I want to speak to somebody of religious knowledge. And my nickname in the police was Mahoney, after Sergeant Mahoney from Police Academy. Um, because I had a Gujarati name and had an English name. So what we, what year are we talking now? 90s, 90s 1990 what? Yeah. Uh, 90, 93, I think it was. 1993, yeah. wow. What, <laughs> what happens is, they uh, no, 92, no, hold on. Roughly around about, no, 92 to 93. Around those years, let's put it that way. And what happens is, they said to me, Mahoney, I don't know much about my faith because I'm not um, that much of a practicing person, but I can go with their parents to the mosque to meet the Hoja. I said, what's the Hoja? Because it's a Turkish word for imam. I go, oh, okay. I go, yeah, it makes sense. It's going to meet um, that religious person, you know, the Muslim priest. So that'll be all right. And it's Ramadan now, by the way, as well. And I've gone with their parents to the mosque. And the mosque was actually the one in Shakowal Lane in Dalston, which used to be a synagogue. And it was the first Turkish separate mosque in the whole of UK. And I've walked in there. The imam comes out and he goes, do you want to become... Sorry, he only spoke Turkish. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here speaking to this guy? I have no idea. I speak English. <laughs> But then there's a university translator, a university lecturer who came and translated. And I think it might have got lost in translation or something. But the imam asked me, do you want to become Muslim? Just then, I had a flashback moment, which seemed forever. But it probably was only about like a five-second um, pause it was. And I thought to myself as well, how much more am I going to be looking at Islam here? Do I believe in the foundation of Islam in terms of the oneness of God? Do I believe in the preservation of the Arabic language here as a ordinary language? And I, I said to myself, I do. And I said to them, yes, I would like to become Muslim. Wow, subhanAllah. And what happens then, obviously there's a little crowd um, gathering around and words gone around the masjid. And then it was like a whole big discussion. Oh, he'll have to have a bath. He'll have to put some water here. And I could work out bits and pieces of what was being said. And I thought to myself, what is this with the water? Can somebody please explain to me? <laughs> and... Uh, the imam said, look, he doesn't need to do any of that. He can just take the shahada. And so I went into the prayer hall. And for the next hour or so, all I saw was the Muslims bopping up and down. And I'm like thinking, what time is this? Like, you're going to finish? <laughs> People were coming in. They saw me sitting at the back of the prayer hall. They were giving me salams. I'm like, all right, mate. <laughs> and they're like, you're not going to join. I go, I'm not Muslim. He goes, oh, Okay. But you can still join or whatever. I go, no, it's right. I'm, I'm, I'm You're right, mate. <laughs> and, um, but eventually I got brought to the front. And I, the, Is that Jumma? Jumma day you're talking Taravi about? Taravi time. Sorry, Taravi oh, time. Oh, wow. Ramadan, Taravi time. Subhanallah. And um, so after they finished the Taravi prayers, uh, I think there's a Vita prayers as well. And I got brought to the front, explained the five pillars of Islam, six pillars of Iman. I was asked by the uh, um, Imam as well. You're doing this by yourself. Nobody's forcing you to do it. I say, absolutely. I'm just doing this by Disclaimer, myself. Disclaimer, yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> how, you, how, you how you arrest someone, like <laughs> you have the right to remain in silence and all of that. <laughs> so what happens? So I repeated the, the Shahada, English and Arabic. And then we got up, started hugging. The men folk started kissing me on the cheeks. That was a bit uncomfortable with. <laughs> I, I've got to be honest. Um, and But that was how... I became Muslim. 
However, I was also told, well, since this is Ramadan, tomorrow you've got to start fasting. <laughs> the so work nice starts immediately, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. And what I realized here was that my newly abducted faith, I could not reveal to my family members. And the reason was because I had grown up as well in an atmosphere of Islamophobia. I could not have a Muslim friend. I was hearing uh, many bad comments about the Muslims, as well as uh, not from immediate family, but um, extended family as well. And the derogative term that the Gujarati Hindus would use to the Muslims, they would call them pakla. Equivalent of that would be calling Muslims Pakis, basically. And that's what the situation was. So I was fasting. I was waking up. I was, for some odd reason, I was leaving the dishes in the sink. And I wasn't washing them for Suhu time, after Suhu time. And my family members then kind of figured out that I'm potentially fasting. There was a few occasions when I was doing my prayers. How old were you at that time? I I became Muslim when I was 18. 18, subhanAllah. So I was just going on to 19 I was, but 18 and years old. And you're also a police officer at that time? I was with the police at that time. So I was young and I had a inner dilemma. On one hand, I couldn't fully present myself as a Muslim to my family, forget society, but to my family as well. And what happens is that I was, I remember I was praying in my room and my father called me and I didn't respond. So my dad figured out and he did say, if you want to do your bloody beep beep um, namaz, you can get out of the house. So I was experiencing initially a verbal abuse. That verbal abuse deteriorates to physical abuse. And we, as I mentioned, we had a, a dog. So the chain of the dog was used to whack me and etc. And I have openly spoken about this as well. If they had an opportunity to kill me, they would have done it. Having a police uniform. If I said to you now, there's a, I'm a police officer. Traditionally what happens, people go a bit quiet and they yeah. want to go away from that police officer. In this case, having a police uniform Didn't brought mean no nothing. protection. So that tells you the level of Islamophobia and how much hatred family members had and they were prepared to kill me. The consequences didn't, didn't matter. Even from the police side, they had never um, came across a situation like this as well. Um, I remember the inspector said he knew of one black convert to Islam. So the police that knew that what, what you were going through? Not totally. But they do, did know I had... Um, Moved premises, I left the family house. Uh, but what happened that year, my belongings moved. So I moved six times in one year, my belongings moved nine times. That did not stop family members still trying to come for me. Even to get a refuge in the masjid was causing me problems. People would say, you go to a masjid, get some relief, etc. In my case, it was the opposite. If I was going to the masjid, it was bringing more harm than good. I did get a fatwa 
to say that if I could lie to my um, family to attend the masjid. And that was ruled in my favour that yes, I could because the obligation was to the creator, not to the created. And that's how I was able to wow, go to a mosque as well. But within that w one year or one year after I became Muslim, my father passes away. Mm. We weren't on speaking terms. And what happens is How that old was he when he passed away? I think by that time I was 19. And he was? Uh, in his 40s. Okay. Well, that's... Young. Young. Yeah. My, from my father's side, all of them have died. Um, I'm perhaps the oldest in my um, father's line in terms of surviving. My, grand, my, my, my father's father, grandfather, he, paternal grandfather, he... Was he, I was told he was murdered in Fiji in a um, tailor shop. And the story that my grandmother said was that there was a, f uh, a customer who um, didn't put a deposit down for the garment and then there was a fight and he was, um, uh, the, my grandfather was murdered. But then it was only, I think, back 15 years ago that I heard another story that my grandfather committed suicide. And that was quite shocking to me. And I was thinking, why did he commit suicide? And it was my aunt who told me, my maternal aunt, and who lives in Leicester. And when I came back to London, I did ask my mother, my late mother at the time, uh, now, sorry, and did dad's dad commit suicide? My mother said in Gujarati, Tane kon kido, meaning who told you? And I know that's my mother's way of saying that is true. Yeah. But, you know, I, I always really wanted to know why my grandfather committed suicide. And there is this program called Who Do You Think You Are? And I feel like, you know, writing to them, I go, look, I've got this mystery that I don't know what's what happened to my grandfather in Fiji. Any potential to do a episode like this or point me in the right direction where we can get um, a feature like this? Because it's very much um, a hidden. Mystery, yeah. It's a mystery what exactly happened to him. It's crazy. Hey guys, I hope you have been enjoying today's episode. And if you have, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Now let's get back right into the show. Yeah. So your father passed away. Father passed away, but this is when I knew automatically that I'm the only son. And in Hinduism, it's the eldest son who performs the last funeral rites. But as the only son, I knew there was, there was going to be so much pressure on me to perform the last rites. And I had said to people, I can't do this. My cousin came down from um, Leicester at that time, who was a bit close to, and he was trying to convince me to do it. By this time, I'd grown a beard as well. And he said, well, well can't I just cut a bit off? And I said, no, I can't, can't do that. I can't do any Hindu rituals. He spoke to the local imam who said that he can't tell me to do something um, for another faith because he'd be sinning as well and the pressure was just far too much it was but i wrote a letter i left it under my uh, in my old bedroom uh, under the uh, pillow and i went back to my place just to get some relief and i explained in that letter i didn't want to be held accountable for another faith that i've left now i've tried to explain but it seems like nobody wants to listen to me, take my feelings into consideration. I remember at that time, there were some relatives that asked me 
was I okay? I said, yeah. And the the fact was, I remember at that time, no Muslim came to visit me. And I tell you, two did, which were work-related ones. But at that Muslim community, personal Muslim community that I developed connections with, none of them came to visit me. My younger sister, who was about 12, 13 at that time, she had a, you know, her young hijabi friends. They came around. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on here? And that was a very isolating occasion. And that's what advice I say to people. Don't leave that revert person alone when there's that funeral time. Be there for them. Go to that same family house with them to offer the support. Or check up upon them by the mobile phone, WhatsApp, every so often. And I remember to find some um, solace, you could say. I was putting on the Taravi um, footage of um, Taravi prayers that took place. That was on the VHS at that time, videotapes. And people would just see me watching this, my relatives. And they looked there and they looked back at me, said, are you okay? I said, yeah. But that's as far as the conversation went. Nobody asked me, you know, deep down, as a, as a male, males traditionally don't reveal their feelings. It's like boys who are growing up, they don't reveal their, their feelings. And this is um, the way our culture, our society, um, you know, shapes um, boys to be, that you need know, to be a rough and tough type character, and it's the females who are supposed to be crying. In Islam, it's not like that. But you've got to remember, I'm still young in my Islamic days, where the crying is, um, wasn't really coming out, but it was there, it was being held inside. And I did find, if I had to be honest, the Muslim community did let me down at that time. And I always wondered, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put me through that test that repeated as a, of um, what would be effectively called attempted murder, as well as um, that time when my father died, why wasn't that support there? And as I now look back, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was preparing me for worse to come. SubhanAllah. What more? What There's more? There is, in terms of another life experience. That's when I married a born Muslim and I was a male victim of domestic violence. Or I've been told to say a male survivor of domestic um, violence. After marriage? After, uh, during my marriage, I married a born Muslim. She was a divorcee. She was older than me. She had kids and I raised the kids. I paid for their Islamic education. I relocated for them. I took them on holidays. Uh, I took them away camping as well. And this is just me and the kids. Her kids, not her as well, initially. This was how it was. And people, her own friends, other sisters would say, they would actually phone her up thinking she was ill. Because, no, no, I'm not ill. Because why is your husband with your kids then at the circles and this, that, whatever? Does that, the the friends, I would just take the kids. I just felt if you've married a divorcee, you've got to play a role in the children's lives. Even though um, their birth father is alive. But, you know, I used to take them Many places, I used to take them at my workplace as well. And other brothers and other um, sisters have actually said to me post-marriage, because Abdul Malik, when you were married, we never saw you laugh, we never saw you smile. And other people who knew me pre-marriage, they said, once I got married, I just went downhill, I did. And there were a lot of, uh, there were cultural issues. The person I married had... Um, How did it with, trigger? How did it even come about, this marriage? Like, So you, you reverted... 
Yeah, you had like, a few months. Like three years in between, three okay. or four years in between. And it was through mutual friends that I was introduced. And I, um, yeah, I got married. And my brother-in-law at that time was the imam who'd done the nikah. And who I kind of like knew anyway. And I met, I remember, the former um, husband um, a few times. And what happens is that at that time, I think I, I had much patience, sabr. You know, when you're in a marriage, you're going through a trial, you're always told to have sabr, 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 sabr. Yeah. And I think that in itself can be counterproductive to oneself. Uh, oneself. And, you know, the, I was seeking advice from other people. They all told me to pull out of the marriage much earlier. I, I, I had bruises. Now, you got to remember, remember, having that knowledge and practicality of being with the police as well, I thought what was happening where my kids were being harmed physically. The, the, the pressure became so much that I, I was just stressed out and I could see the after effects on my children or what was happening where they were beaten up literally. I was well, your children or uh, sorry, the children? So now I've also had my children as well. But one thing I remember recently, about a month ago, I came across a sister who'd done a post about a nikah. And he goes, if you marry a brother and you go to a restaurant and the brother behaves, the husband, new husband, behaves appalling to the waiter, that's an early red sign. And you know, when she said that, I thought to myself, you know what? I remember when I went for my first restaurant meal. First date, if you like, you know, with the the wife back then, she was beating up her child in the restaurant, Damn, underneath nice. the table, or whatever. Fast asking, I said, "You stop this! What's sort of going on here?" So you know, this was the, the situation. That was an early red flag. But I thought, okay, so about this, that, whatever, and you know, you think to yourself, you can develop one's character once you get married and blah blah, blah etc. But there was another part to do with that. Every weekend was around the in-laws' place. And I was thinking to myself, you know, why do you have to go every weekend? Because, oh, you've got to know the family um, in the beginning and this, that, whatever. I said, yeah, but what about the time that we get to spend together? That wasn't her priority, that way I saw it. Because every evening when I was coming back, always on the phone, the father, the mother, the, the, sis, the siblings. And I'm thinking, well, what time is left here, like, you know, between ourselves? And I've realised as well, speaking to different brothers and sisters, that unless couples spend time, quality time amongst themselves, without the in-laws as well, but that doesn't mean you disassociate yourself with the in-laws, you have to have that quality time yourself. It doesn't mean every weekend you have to go to your in-laws. But, you know, in this case, I was taking her kids, as I said, camping, work, this, that, whatever. One of the biggest accusations were made against me, I never used to look after the kids. When I tell brothers and sisters this, they said, that's a lie. We always used to see you at work. I even said to her, go name me one father who takes their children to work. She couldn't shrug the shoulders, didn't want to respond. I go, you know what I'm exactly leading to. I'm the only father you know who takes kids to work. I even took, I, we went to Egypt as well to learn Arabic. And what we realized was that um, she was pregnant. So she came back a bit earlier. And I was out there for nearly three months with her two kids and my eldest child as well. So you had so two child with her? I had three children, three children myself at that time. And over the space of? It's, um, it was a 15-year marriage. 15-year marriage. Wow. And when did this... And what used to so happen you mentioned abuse, well? like 
what, I mean, what are you abuse? kind of saying? Like, how? How Phys- can a man get abused? A man can get abused. I hear this from different brothers as well. Men, Muslim males, can get abused. It's physical abuse where you've got bruises. You've turned to the police to report it. The atmosphere, is, I had severe sky ticker that I couldn't drive. I couldn't walk. I remember my, I went to a physiotherapist, but my eldest son at that time was my walking stick to help me there. I also remember I was crawling from the front room through the hallway to my child's bedroom to save him being repeatedly beaten up by the mother. And this is when it got far too much. And I said, no, I'm bringing in social services now. I went to do a self-referral to social services. Now, you imagine the background I came from. I came from, I had done courses in social care as well before that police time. One would expect there would have been intervention here and proper intervention. However, till this day, I am being told by that local authority, they have no idea who I met on my first day when I came to social services. Do you know what happened in that meeting? I broke down in tears, I did. And they don't want to keep a record of that. There were other meetings I attended where I broke down in tears. When I looked up the case records from the freedom uh, subject access request, there's no mention of me being, being visibly distressed. There is no mention Why? Why is of that? other um, professionals who demanded that local authority social services put my domestic violence in. And I could see they were hesitant to put it in. Like, why? They did eventually, she did, this other professional, get it written down. But when that final write-up report was done, it was removed. And I questioned, why have you removed my domestic violence? There was even somebody who was a Sikh woman who came to the family house to do positive parenting classes. And she was um, speaking to both of us. And she was asking me, are you actually medically fit? Because of my, you know, uh, extremely bad sciatica where I, I, the only um, uh, position of relief was me lying down. But all this you know, uh, abuse that was happening or whatever, what was happening at this time, I used to use as a coping, uh, um, a, a form of coping strategy. I turned myself to what I had a hobby of researching Muslim heritage in Britain. I kept on reading and reading and researching this to get me away from her. And that's what led me to the foundation of, of my work that I do today. Um, but in this case, the, um, the positive parenting woman, she says to me, am I medically fit? She could see that I was struggling, I was. Like in a, in a kind of empathetic way or in a kind yeah. of sarcastic way? Was no, she? no. She, she saw it, uh, how much pain I was in. So she had this, you know, sympathy there for me. But then when she actually looked at the wife and how she was behaving, she was getting angry in front of her, literally like this. And I thought to myself, what's going on here that you've been displaying for your first time now in front of these professionals? But you know, cut a long story short though, we had these repeated sessions. There's not a single record on the case file about this positive parenting classes. I how does it disappear? Like, this is the how? whole thing. I've asked the local authority, what's happened to my domestic violence? Why have you removed it? They said, we've never removed it. It's never been there. 
These are managers who are telling me this. Subhanallah, that is, so basically what you're saying from what I'm hearing is, so what, 19, is it 2000? These then? are the noughties, yeah, it would have been. Noughties to at least, um, not 23, yeah, going on to about 2013 or so, I think it was. 2013, so it's quite like recent. Time. 10 years. 10 years ago. 10 years. Yeah. But that doesn't mean when I came out of the marriage, you know, I even had a, a meal with one of the brothers who the family members knew as well. Last year, I said to him, if I could have taken your advice back then, I would have pulled out the marriage, uh, looking back at it now. So 2013, these people are effectively men, what you're saying, from what I'm hearing is but men have no support in, no, in, in some sense. No. Or I, in every I, sense. I had been, because of what I had gone through, different forms of um, abuse, uh, psychological, financial, um, etc. And there's other forms as well, which I won't go into. Um, I was prioritised to get emergency council accommodation. From not being on the council list, I was um, straight to number two. I was. So that shows you the severity of that abuse I had. And I only managed to get that when I had escaped. I thought enough was enough. I'm leaving now. What happened to the and kids? I... This was the whole thing that was keeping me back from leaving earlier on. Um, it was to do the safeguarding of my children. My children packed their bags as well. I said, Abi, let's go, please. And I looked out the window and I thought to myself, I can jump out the window, but you guys can't. And we, had, we were in the, uh, my son's room and we were holding the door, stopping the mother to kick down the door. Is she that strong level? Like, What's That's going her, on? That was her behavior. I mean, if you look at it, she's all petite and everything like that. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean there is no aggression there. Wow. And what happens is, that was one example. Another example was my son was held down and there's something from a safeguarding point of view called the safety triangle. That there's in, if there's any injury around this part over here, that should set alarm bells ringing. Till this day, I've never been given explanation by that local authority, social services, what happened to my child. I saw it and I reported it. I was never subsequently questioned about it. The Jeep. Oh, that is mad. That is crazy. So it was just one thing after another. She was protected. She had her own two children as well who were not being honest. Her own family would close ranks. Her own sister even said to me, Abdul Malik, if it was, happen if it was going to happen again and we, we see it in front of us, we would tell her to stop it. But because all the siblings, her siblings are younger than her and she's the eldest, they, can't, they won't really do it. So there's all the cultural issues that came into it as well. One occasion I had to, again, um, call the police and I, I, I pleaded with um, her sister. I go, you said to me, if it was going to happen again, you would speak. She said, quiet. And this is the eye in the Quran that you know it rings a bell. Speak the truth against yourself and your family as well. I thought, no way is this ayah being implemented here. So, and when, by the when way, was I was it? also stretched off to hospital repeatedly as well. They put me on, on ECG machines. I, I remember um, being in the ward where I looked at the people in front of me. I looked to the left of me, and then I looked up. Think to myself, Allah, why is Allah putting me through this test? Everyone around me was at least 30 to 40 years older than me. Wow. 
That is crazy. That's how much stress I was in and that even the doctors didn't know what was happening to me. And I'm thinking, if you guys are the specialists, you don't even know what's happening to me here. How long do I have left to get, you know, I wondered about it. I used to do a lot of du'a as well. I increased my attendance to the masjid. I had a fascination, I still do, going to a masjid. That was a problem in my household. Going to the masjid, taking the kids to the masjid. Was, wasn't really seen in good light. It was looked down upon. So tell me, when did you finally manage to escape? It, and Even when I did escape, I did go back. I've got to be honest. Because it was the kids. My kids wrote me secret letters as well, which I still treasure them. Okay, so what, what's But, happening now? Are you kind of out of it? I'm out of it. Um, I've had to move on. Um, And the kids like are the with advice. you? or No. SubhanAllah, that is mad. That is crazy. This is And you don't know what's going on? You don't know world. what's happening? No. To them? No. That is mad. Allah, that is... That is Crazy. I did not expect this conversation to turn to go that way. Yeah. Like this. That is that I mean, is heavy, I man. That is heavy. I speak about it because I've realized there's a lot of brothers as well as sisters who may be going through some sort of similar situation, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's through that revert journey. They experience it from their own family. And they just need to hear somebody else who kind of echoes their type of story and then realize they're not alone. In their story Do you think story. Our South Asian reverts Get it harder Than the Say I guess British Or someone who's White English or yeah, yeah. Yes um, Out of all the Brown converts As they say It's perhaps myself And Saladin Patel Who works for AIRA Dawa organization We're The only two brown converts That I know of Who are open About our former faiths How we came to Islam And some of the current um, affairs of today as well. Just the two of us. Everyone else who's a brown convert don't really want to um, be open about themselves. They don't want to um, sometimes even pair up. I have a relative who became Muslim. And I thought, I thought oh, okay. And I worked out who she was as well. I've, I don't remember meeting her ever. But she goes, she, she, she remembers me. And when I converted, I left the family house. And then I thought, that's not the truthful story. I had to leave for my own safety when I converted. That's how I was, I was you know, kicked out. But what happens is, I said to her, let's meet up. She says, I don't want to meet you. And I'm thinking, why? Because, because you're from that community. The same, sorry, the same community, the Dirji community. And I thought to myself, but I left that more than 20 years ago. Why would you, this is how they think, you know, what will family members or people who know them from previously are going to say, and it's going to all get back to their family. That whole thing, you know, what would the community say? What would the community say? So what, what's your, I guess, takeaway from, because you kind of mentioned a few times, why is Allah doing this to me? Why is, why is it happening to me? You know, have you found that wisdom or have you kind of found the answer that you were kind of, I guess, looking for? Why is it happening to you? One question I do get asked, did at any time think about leaving Islam? My honest answer is, and Allah is my witness, the answer is no, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave me the greatest gift I could have ever wished for, and that was my deen, my Islam. I remember also, do you remember I mentioned about watching the Taravi prayers? I used to say that under my breath, 
I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I didn't have no words apart from Allah. Akbar. Those are the only words I knew. You know, God is the greatest. I remember watching it and I used to say to myself, one of these days, I'm going to come to your house. Eventually, I did, did um, perform Hajj, which came um, via a charity who knew, which was just uh, after I kind of left, I did. But there's another part of my life I had to rebuild after my marriage situation. I had turned even to the Muslims who had witnessed many things and they turned their backs on me as well. We could have a second episode to this because we haven't even spoken about, uh, I guess, what I thought we would talk yeah. about, which is your current job. Um, maybe briefly just tell us why you do what you do and how it all came about and, and why should anyone even, I guess, consider what you do? I run something called Halal Tourism Britain, where I look at inbound Halal Tourism. Most Muslim tour operators, or tour agents I should say, look at taking Muslims from Britain abroad. Turkey, Al-Aqsar, uh, Bosnia, and some other places that have recently emerged like Uzbekistan. I look to cater for the Muslims who are coming to Britain. What people don't realize, there are more Muslims traveling to Britain for holidays than the amount of Muslims who leave Britain to go holiday. So it shows you what's there and what's available. From a halal tourism point of view, Britain scores highly in the non-Muslim Western countries. How? In the sense, there's a, a um, company called Crescent Rating who are based in yeah. Singapore. They rate Britain, this year it was a number two position in the non-OIC countries, meaning non-organization of Islamic countries, because the connectivity that Britain has in terms of air flights, also the availability of halal food. Here it's widespread, and without going to the definition of what is a halal, and yeah, yeah. stunning this, that, whatever, it's widespread. We have ample prayer places as well. I say prayer places, not just the masjids, because there's certain locations where you can offer your prayers and it's not like France where you yeah. can't, you have to hide your, yeah, your Islam, etc. So we have that. We also have ample heritage sites, Muslim heritage sites as well. That sounds interesting. Tell that me is, more about heritage. Now, when I became Muslim, um, sorry, yeah, when I became Muslim, I was speaking to the different brothers and sisters about Muslim heritage, they were telling me thing, everything abroad. Yeah. yeah the foundation That's was what the, I think the, as the, well. the, the, the Sira, the Caliphs, etc. That I understood. That's a foundation without doubt any Muslim needs to learn. However, um, then they were rushing to go to Al Andalus, Muslim Spain. I'm like, so what do you know about Muslim history here? They were like, well, our parents came in, blah, blah, and that was it. Yeah. Some people had uh, heard about Woking Mosque. Yeah. Or the Liverpool Mosque, wasn't much publicity then about them, but Woking Mosque was the first seen as purpose-built mosque in England where Salah used to take place. And I stood back and I thought to myself, okay, this is a bit odd. But then I actually started to do it as a hobby to do it as a research. When I then obviously had my um, first life experience, of, well, um, sorry, in the marriage it was second, I, um, it was, I excelled, if you like, in that, field i just kept on doing more in depth and just you know it's a coping strategy kept on looking at that to keep me away from the monster basically and then i thought to myself you know what 
I'm going to do something. I'm going to start doing some workshops. So I initially, for a few months, started to do workshops. Vikings and Muslims, Tudors and Muslims, Victorians and Muslims, and a normal timeline presentation. But then I realized in a matter of months, I thought, hold on, if I took a bit from here, a bit from this one, put add in a bit here, I could have a walking tour. So I started to do walking tours. And I started with the odd one in central London. And when I was, whilst I was doing my research, yes, I got stopped by the police as well. <laughs> Thinking, what's this guy, you know, with the beard, etc. cetera, um, yeah. taking pictures of like these sensitive buildings and down in central London. I identified myself. I got, here's my business card or whatever. They ran checks on me. I thought, okay, you're free to I go. But now yeah. they see me with the red fez hat, so they all know me now. So it's a mark. I said, don't mess with this guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but what happens, I now then, um, now I've got about over 40 different types of experiences. But what happens as well, I see the sightseeing tour buses go past me. And I thought to myself, I want to create one like this one day. At night time, I'm sleeping, or is it twisting, turning for one? Well, I'm going to wait for one day. Let's just get it done now. So I searched for a bus company that I could partner up with. And bing, then we had a, a bus tour. So now I have four different sightseeing bus tours. I have, as I said, over 40 uh, um, different types of experiences. These also include halal food cruises on the River Thames as well. But that was one side, if you like. Another side that I wanted to build was myself. So I became, um, which I didn't know at the time, Britain's first professionally qualified Muslim tour guide. And, you know, I made history. And, you know, the colleagues in the tour guiding industry, they knew my preference is only Muslim history. If I'm going to be talking about Georgian houses, etc., I'm going to put my audience to sleep. But if there's a Muslim spin to it, I don't mind. They're, they're, that's, uh, you know, and they do also wonder, how come I get all the black and brown people and they only get white people? Of course, <laughs> the topics you're covering, it's a bit simple. You don't need brain <laughs> surgery. But what did happen even in that year one was that after I did the first term as a student, I realized there was no diversity whatsoever. Literally, forget... Um, Muslim focus. So I said that feedback I gave. Then in the third term, they revised the curriculum and introduced a diversity part to it. So I, I, when I was there, I impacted the course as well. I also um, kept on, you know, building myself in terms of halal tourism part. And I do openly speak about Britain, um, international conferences as well, and domestic conferences about Britain being a halal-friendly destination and why as well and from that as well what i did i um i've had uh, meetings with visit britain who are the national tourism office to do with britain and they've identified me as the authority of halal tourism in britain amazing so that's an Fantastic achievement, in achievement. Itself. i've seen your linkedin post yeah. and i was like wow this is this is really good i mean something else i've done internationally as well about two three two years ago post covid i started halal cruises and um that's for international so if people want to have um private cruises then i could um, get that arranged in different parts of the world and i had that vision from day one that i want to have these halal cruises as well and i've been keeping an eye in terms of the halal cruise industry internationally, and I've noticed where other um, organizations, companies are falling down. Uh, but at the same time, in order to build to get through that stage, I had to start something in UK, create that following, create that thirst, if you like, and then scale it up to international cruises. So that is what is happening now, private cruises. But at the same time, where can I scale up from there? And that's when next Eid 
We're going to be having an international Eid cruise where there's going to be a number of cabins on board a private luxury boat. Amazing. Fantastic. And I really wish, um, and well, I hope um, I see myself in there as well. Um, two things um, before, you, uh, before we finish, hopefully. Tell us the significance of this red hat that you wear. <laughs> and I guess the second question would be, what is that one advice that you would give to anyone? One universal, I guess, mantra or advice, or whatever you want to call it. So two questions. Red okay. hat and your best advice. The red fest hat, the reason why I wear it. Now, tour guides in general, or some do actually now, when they deliver tours, they dress up. So I've got a, a colleague who's an American uh, tour guide and she dress up, uh, dresses up like Mary, Mary, Mary Poppins. And for myself, I thought, what could I wear to identify as a Muslim tour guide? I thought I could dress up like a Moorish type um, character, you know, with a turban, plastic sword and flamboyant type clothing. I thought, would I walk around in my era wearing that? <laughs> I thought, nah. Then I thought, yeah, let me go for the Fez hat because that I can be seen in the crowd as well as well as, um, you know, people can identify who I am. So that's when I adopted the Fez hat. And when I don't wear it at events, people are always saying, where's my red Fez hat? Yeah. It's kind of like the thing, I'm naked without you. Almost, yeah, I've, you know? I've kind of asked you, like, as soon as you've arrived, <laughs> where's the red hat? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fantastic. What's that one best advice yeah. after everything that you've been through, um, um, I guess conversion to Islam and then the abusive marriage and now that you you don't even get to I guess you don't have access or you, the kids are not with you you know In, can I give one message I don't think I can give one message but what I would say to anyone who's facing a trial out there whether it's a brother whether it's a sister whether it's a child whether it's a parent don't underestimate the power of the du'a. And for some of us, we are going to have to rely upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. And that help where we wish it could come from humans, sometimes we have to be ready to accept it may not, may not come as quick as we appreciate it. And if you are looking for a solution in this life and it doesn't arrive, or where you think to yourself what you've been through, how would people be accountable? We always need to remember the Akhirah, where every soul be held accountable. That's what I would do. Um, so dua and rest, I guess, rest the case to Allah. As an ultimate. It, it is for me, um, people realized how deep I had gone and given my um, professional skills and background, etc., that I had, I had a different take to things. And I, I do advise people as well. Um, you know, I've had um, born Muslim sisters turn to me when they've um, realized what I've been through. Oh. And they want to speak about their experiences. I, I am a mentor to other um, revets out there. I'm a wali to other revets as well. Amazing. And, you know, I, I, this side, I do completely voluntary. No, definitely let us know if there is anything that we can do to kind of support our river brothers and sisters. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I would love to kind of get involved and, yeah. you know, support you in whatever way we can. Yeah, so once again, uh, Brother Abdul Malik Taylor, 
Jazakallah khairan for sharing your amazing, no, I wouldn't say amazing, your incredible story. I honestly didn't think, you know what, tell you the truth. Before I came this morning, I was praying to Allah, Allah, make my day go smoothly mm. and make my conversation an interesting one today in, in my podcast. And subhanallah, Allah has answered my prayers because normally, I mean, I feel like obviously we've run out of time already mm. and I feel like I want to know more. I want to I hear more. And inshallah, I'm sure we will kind of um, visit and, and meet again. But Jazakallah khairan um, for sharing your free. story with us. And I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people will, you know, relate to your stories and I'm sure they will make dua for you as well. And if anyone wants to, I guess, learn about the Muslim history or Muslim heritage, in Britain, then I guess Brother Brother Abdul Malik is the person to get in touch with. Jazakallah khairan. And that's it for today. I hope you have been enlightened with today's conversation. Honestly, I have been blown away. I feel so, so honored to have had Brother Abdul Malik on the show. And I hope you will enjoy. I hope you have enjoyed. And of course, um, share with anyone that you feel that might benefit from this conversation. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.